0: Alright, we're doing the Psalms this semester in RUF, just a couple of weeks uh, left. Uh, we're going to look at Psalm 126 tonight. It's a part of this set of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. And it's something that the Jewish people uh, sang together on their way to some of the big religious festivals in Jerusalem. Um, and so that was kind of the use of this Psalm at that time. And what I hope you're seeing in the Psalms is this. is This is one of the places in Scripture where um, the emotional life is processed. And what I hope and what I think we see is that the Bible's intensely realistic about who we are. There's not this kind of naive, disillusioned, everything's all right kind of otherworldliness to the emotional life of the believer. But within Scripture, and especially within the Psalms, Um, It recognizes the messiness of life, the complexity of emotions, all the different things we feel. And tonight, we're going to look at the emotion of joy or the feeling of joy and what that is. And uh, and it grapples with it in a real way, not in a naive way. And so I hope you see that. So I'll read and I'll pray for us. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our, fo- our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the time to come together and consider your word, and we pray that you would teach us that as we consider this song that your people sung, dear Lord, that the impact of it and the import of it would reach into our hearts. This wouldn't be a mental exercise, but this would be a place where you come and do business with who we are, uh, that you confront us, and that you show us that you are good. Be with us, God. Be with us, Holy Spirit. Teach us now in your name we pray. Amen. So I'm thinking about this week, and I realize the first thing that's got to happen is we have to define what joy is. And um, all throughout the week, I read different things and thought about different things. And it's just, joy is a word that's so big that every definition you come up with feels like it falls really short and kind of small when you consider the idea of joy. And, um, and I realized like, I, I don't think it would be helpful to try to define specifically what joy is. You kind of, you know it when you experience it, you know it when you see it. But to say what it is, you'd have to be far more poetic or artistic than I can be. And, um, and I realized that maybe the best thing to do then is to say, I think there are, there's a way to say, what are the circumstances of joy? So if we can't exactly say what it is because it's too big for words, where's the pla- where are the places that we find it? And I realized the place where we find it, or one of the places where you can see in joy illustrated or on display, is these YouTube videos of troops coming home and meeting their families. Have you all seen these compilation videos that people make that's set to, like, Celine Dion songs and stuff? <laughs> Somebody sent me a 10-minute one. It's 10 minutes long. It's just dozens and dozens of fathers greeting their children after being in combat. And again, you all know every instance I've cried in my adult life at this point. One episode of Buffy, two episodes of Friday Night Lights, and Rudy. <laughs> The only other time I've cried is watching this video. And I watched it again this afternoon, and I was like sitting in my office, and I was getting all like, hoping the girls weren't coming back, because, you know, I don't want my five-year-old girls to think I'm sensitive. I don't know what the problem is there. But, <laughs> but I think those are the circumstances of joy. I think joy is on display in those circumstances because this is fundamentally what's happening in those videos. And this is why those videos are so touching to us and can undo even really stoic people like me. Is because the world's getting made right again. Joy is what we feel when things are the way they were supposed to be. And when little girls and when little boys' daddies come home, that is the world getting made right again. And they come undone. The fathers come undone and the children come undone. And they're weeping. But that's joy, right? Joy is whatever it is. I don't know how to define it, but I know where you find it. You find it where the world is getting made right again, where everything is right, where daddies come home to their little girls and to their little boys. Joy is what you feel when things are the way they're supposed to be. And, and this is the frustrating thing, right? There's so little joy in all of our lives. We're, we're trying to squeeze it out of different avenues however we can but we're all keenly aware, we're not going to catalog all the different ways, that just the world's not right. Um, Things aren't right. But what this passage does is it celebrates the story that the Bible is telling about the world, and that is it's the story that God's making all things new again. And when you get in on God making things right again, then guess what happens? Joy starts to creep in. And that's what's happening right here. The world's broken, and... It's a little bit reductionistic, but there's kind of two paths you can take in terms of dealing with that. And the first path is the path of distraction, right? The world's broken, relationships are broken, families are broken, we're broken, we're all selfish, we're full of pride, we don't think the right thoughts, no matter how Stanford awesome you are, you know you're broken. We know the world's broken, right? And so we can take the path of distraction, and what I mean by that is we can be busy, man, and busy will keep you distracted. And you can be busy your entire life. You can be tyrannized by, the, by what's urgent right in front of you and the cultural values that say you accomplish that and you move on, you accomplish that and you move on, you accomplish that, move on and you can just stay busy. And that can keep you and that can kind of numb the wrongness that you feel about the world, right? Control. Maybe that's another way we distract. By control and manage. It's not simply the act of just doing things all the time but also having the sense of control over my circumstances. Information. I think mean, information is a way we stay distracted. Um, the problem with distraction and distracting ourselves from what's wrong is that it's temporary, right? It never lasts. We always find out we've got to be distracted again, right? It also selectively engages reality. We're so afraid of dealing with dark areas that we can't deal with those dark parts of reality and we just start to pretend that they're not there. So we distract ourselves from the hard things and we selectively engage reality and try to just pretend things aren't there. We try to pretend that there are parts of our story that don't really exist. We're not who we really are even in our deepest friendships because we just can't let anybody know what's really broken about us. So we selectively engage reality. We pretend the, world, the world's not what we actually know it to be. And distraction's always under threat. That's the other problem with it. You're always being threatened with the reality that the world might show up, that what's wrong might really break in that you might get exposed, that the world might just... that reality is going to hit. So it's always under threat, that distraction. It's temporary. It doesn't engage all of reality. It's always under threat. That's the first path. The other path is the path of joy. But I want i want you to see right here that this is a joy that is not naively optimistic. It's not unattached from what's hard about the world. And what I want us to see is theres there's two actually... There's a temporal aspect to this psalm that teaches us about joy. In the first three verses, you have this backward-looking, past-tense aspect. In 4, 5, and 6, you have this forward-looking aspect. And he's couching joy in this kind, of temp- this, this kind of time continuum of looking back and looking forward. And showing us that I think one of the roots, maybe the root of joy, is precisely that is living with a broader perspective than what's simply urgent in front of you. Having the capacity both to look back and to look forward. It begins, so our, our first point is this, joy comes, begins with remembering the past. So the psalm starts, When the Lord restored the, fortune, the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. They said among the nations, everybody else said, The Lord has done great things for these people. The Lord has done great things for us, this is verse 3, where We are glad. And what the psalmist is most likely referring to right here, there's several instances in Israel's history where they've been in captivity. Most likely, this one is probably referring to the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century. Um, they were taken over by Babylon. They were held in captivity for 70 years. Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 39. He, he, he foretells, he says, The days are coming when all that is your house, he's speaking to the king, and that which your fathers have stored up to this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, even your sons. You know, we can't comprehend what it means for your people to be taken over and to taken into captivity. And that is, that's, that's where they were for 70 years, and then the Lord delivered them. These are, these are historical records. You'll remember books like Ezra and Nehemiah about Israel being restored and coming back to the Promised Land, back to Canaan, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and the Temple of Jerusalem. They're restored. Decades of suffering and injustice and loss of identity as a people group. In some ways... That tragedy is beyond our capacity to understand. Um, But the Lord delivered them. And so there's this description remembering what it felt like, right? And it's so appropriate. He says, it was like a dream. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Literally, it's getting at the sense, maybe you've had this before, where something so good has happened that you use this word to describe it. Because this is the right word. It's surreal. right? When people, maybe you won something, maybe you got understand for whatever it is, something so good that it almost doesn't feel real. You almost don't know what to feel during that moment. And so people use the word surreal. It is feels like it's outside of reality. It's so good, it feels like a dream. That's what he's saying. And it leads them to laughter. Our tongue was filled with laughter. Maybe the highest expression of joy is not just a fist pump or a yes or telling other people about it. It's probably laughter, you know? That's what they remember. They remember the past goodness of the Lord. They remember. And it was so good, in fact, that at the end of verse 2, that people around them look and say, wow, the Lord has done great things for them. It says, the nations said, the Lord has done great things for them. The goodness that the Lord bestowed on Israel was so good that the world acknowledged it and said, that's amazing. Look what the Lord has done for them. Here's my point joy is not ephemeral, it's not temporary, it's not daily. Real joy, as the way the Bible views it, is not, it's not determined or rooted in your immediate set of circumstances. That's what we all want it to be rooted in because then we can feel like we have control and we think if we can manage everything, then we're going to have joy. It's not rooted in your immediate set of circumstances. And if it were, we'd be tyrannized by the immediate all the time. It can't be rooted in our immediate set of circumstances. What the Israelites are doing is they're engaged in the deeply necessary and healthy practice of looking back. They're practicing perspective. What if all you ever did was live in the here and now with no remembrance? We'd be terrified all the time. In a lot of ways, that's kind of where we are. I don't know if y'all have heard of or seen the movie Memento, but uh, it's directed by Christopher Nolan, who's done all the Dark Knight movies since then. Memento is ten times better than any the Batman movies, and I love the Batman movies. Y'all need to go and see it the movie is really interesting it's about a guy who has no short-term memory and it enters the movie is through his perspective you're engaging the story where you know nothing that happens beforehand and it's really it's an interesting insight into life without being attached to a story because what happens is he feels urgent all the time like he's got to be doing something and whatever he's doing is really really important but he never knows why and he gets carried along by whatever anybody else convinces him is really urgent. He's actually at, he's at the mercy of everybody else's opinions about reality because he doesn't know where he is or who he is. So he's busy, he's accomplishing a lot, and he's completely lost because he has no idea what his history is. He hasn't remembered. That's life. It's a little bit like our girls when, when we promise them something good, when we say... I don't, I don't know why this is really interesting. Our girls' favorite thing in the world now is to go to the Dutch Goose on Saturday afternoons. <laughs> it's like one of those things when my parents are going to be like, I told you if you, talk to your kids, if you take your kids to California, they're going to go crazy. Now my children, their favorite place to go is a pub. But, um, but we'll, we'll tell them at some point, hey, girls, we're going to go to the Dutch Goose on Saturday. All day on Saturday, they are frantic and fearful that somehow we're not going to make it to the Dutch Goose. <laughs> And and, and it's it's irritating, because then you start threatening, we're not going to go to the Dutch Goose if you keep whining about the Dutch Goose, and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) But mostly what we try to do is we say, sweetheart, remember last Saturday? We said we were going to the Dutch Goose, and what do we do? We took you to the Dutch Goose. (laughs) We tell them to remember. We tell them to remember the past work of their parents. And that's the only Otherwise, they've lost it. They just lose it. In a lot of ways, I feel like we all feel like we're people without stories, without histories. We don't know where we came from, and we don't remember the Lord's goodness. We don't remember the things that He's done, and we feel like falling apart. You start judging reality by your immediate set of circumstances. So you start making these broad, sweeping opinions about all of reality by looking at only your immediate circumstances. God doesn't love me. God's not good. I'm falling apart. I'm going to fail. There's no joy in that. That's not how a life was intended to be. Joy. This is the first point. Joy is full of stories. Telling stories is one of the most important aspects of joy. Remembering good things is a great thing. I don't get to see my college friends very often now, but when we get together, we have we have epic times. And you know what we do? We just tell stories. We say, "Remember when?" And it's hysterical, and we we laugh until we start crying. It's a blast. I've only been here for eight or nine months now, seven or eight months, and several weeks ago I went to, incidentally, the Dutch Goose with several guys, and in seven months we already have enough stories that we could sit around a table and tell stories and laugh. We could just remember things about the fall, uh, the fall quarter, and just laugh hysterically. Joy has history attached to it. And so what that means for us, two points of application is this, remember the recent past and remove the distant past. Our pastor in uh, South Carolina, Sinclair Ferguson, is this old Scottish theologian, and I'm not going to do a Scottish accent when I quote him, but I really wish that I was confident enough in my Scottish accent to do it. So I feel like I failed you tonight, I apologize. But he made this comment, he, he said several times, he goes, you know how they're... Several times in your life, even in the life of a believer, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, where the gospel is presented so clearly and so beautifully, whether it's in a sermon or a meditation or in prayer, that it delights your heart and you feel like you became a Christian again for the first time. And this is a 70-year-old Scottish pastor who's loved Jesus for longer than I've been alive. And he says this at the end, and he goes, I hope I never stop having that feeling over and over again. Y'all no, we need to remember the times that grace was sweet to you when you got it, when it broke in, when you were convicted of sin and the healing words of Jesus' forgiveness broke into your heart and it was healing for you. Remember that. The times when your sins paid for at home, when you were new, you were justified, when you were adopted, when you were confident in the work of Jesus, when Jesus was sweet to you, the seasons when you experienced the enjoyment of the Lord's favor, that was a delight. Remember those times. Retell those times. Again, this bears repeating even though we can talk about it every week. This is a corporate exercise here. This, this psalm is full of we's and ours, not you's and me's and I's. Remember together. Remember the recent past of the, of the Lord at work in your life, but also remember the distant past. Because if you want joy and sweetness and the security that you feel like should be a part of the Christian life, but it's, it doesn't feel like it's there, for it to be- break in and start to become a permanent fixture in your life, you have to remember the distant past as well. And you have to remember the simple things that he who didn't spare his own son, he who didn't spare his own son for you, gave his son for you, how will he not also give you all things? God's love is sealed in the blood of his own son. He's shown you the extent that he's willing to go to, to restore you, to gather you, and to bring you back. That neither death nor life, rulers, things present or things to come, powers, tribulation, distress, persecution, whatever it is, none of it can separate God's people from his love. Our present circumstances are going to be in flux. They're going to be changing. You think you have control. You don't. For joy to creep into that constantly changing set of circumstances that we all live in. For our hearts not to be yanked about, but every tiny difficulty that comes up in life and every big difficulty, we've got to make a practice of remembering. The recent past and the distant past. So that in the midst of, you're single, you got messed over in housing, friends left you out. School, internships, didn't pan out. There are things, those are, those are trivial, those are real, and you feel them, they're trivial, but there are dark things in all of our lives that are so dark that if I set them up here, they would be scandalous. And, and you're carrying those, a lot of us, by ourselves, and we shouldn't be. We should be carrying them with brothers and sisters. The only thing to not let, that can keep those things from overwhelming us is remembering. Remembering the past mercies of the Lord Remembering what it costs him to redeem you. Do you think that he would let you languish if we cost him so dearly? Remember who your dad is by remembering what he's done. That's what the Israelites are doing right here. They're remembering the past deliverance of the Lord. But that's not all. Verses 4 through 6, then begin to look forward. Joy comes not just from remembering. In fact, if all we're doing is remembering, then all we in a sense have is wistful nostalgia and then kind of an ambiguous hope that we're not sure about. We've got to know two things. We've got to know what God has done and what God is doing for there to be real joy. Otherwise, we're still deeply insecure. Even if we look at that past record, we need more. We need to know what God is doing. This is what he says in verses 4 through 6. There's this forward-looking, Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Notice he's, he's actually praying again for deliverance. He's experienced the Lord's deliverance, but he's recognizing there's more. Like streams in the Negev, he's talking about a desert being brought to life again. Those who sow in tears, now hear this confidence about the future, shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping and bearing the seed for sowing shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. There's confidence that the Lord will accomplish all he needs to accomplish. We sow in tears. We go out each morning, each day, to the task set before us, and it's tough. But we'll reap shouts of joy. We'll come home with shouts of joy. We'll bring in sheaves and abundant harvest. This is an agricultural culture. So these kind of metaphors are appropriate. This is they're comparing life to sowing to uh, sowing your field with seed and working and struggling. But they know this, They know, and, and the harvest is the results of that, right? And they say, at the end of all this struggle in life, there will be good. There will be good. There will be shouts of joy. There will be celebration. There will be joy. There will be joy in abundance. There will be a great consummation of joy completed. Here's the point. We can't just remember the past. Without certainty of the future, then past is just nostalgia. We have to know also things will be good again. There has to be confidence about the future. Joy can be had in the present when we have that full perspective of the past and the future. That's the only way that the present circumstances aren't going to eat us alive. And the psalmist is saying, I know. I know that the Lord will take care of his people. I know that this is not all that there is. I know that in the Lord there's life, there's new life. In Jesus there's new creation. The sting of death, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gave us victory. And in 1 Corinthians 15 he's talking about victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in that same passage that he taunts death. But he says, now that I am in Jesus, oh death, where is your sting? He taunts death. Imagine the kind of confidence it takes to be able to taunt death to no longer be afraid of it. That's what Paul does. Why? Because he's in Jesus and the resurrection is his. In Acts 4, the first Christian persecution really takes place. You know why the very first Christians are persecuted? It's Peter and John in Acts 4. It's not because they preached Jesus. It's not what they got upset about. They got upset about because they preached the resurrection. And the reason why is this. is because people who believe in the resurrection are terrifying people. People who believe in the resurrection are terrifying people. If the resurrection is yours, if you will be with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth, with the Lord when all things are made new again, two things will happen to you. You will become joyful and you will become fearless. You rest in the resurrection, you'll be full of joy, and you will be empty of all fear. Because there's nothing more threatening, threatening to the status quo and to power structures in this world than people who are fearless, than people who aren't afraid of death, who can taunt death. We've got to know the future and the past to have joy. Does that mean that we know every step in between? Absolutely not. But God's given us a reminder that the God of grace and the God of justice is going to set the world right again. There's this story that I think now it's passed into legend, um, but I've heard it several times of seminary students sitting in the library one night debating certain aspects of the weird book of Revelation. And uh, as they were working on it, this janitor comes by, and in kind of a snide and arrogant moment, one of the in the middle of their debate, they say, let's ask the janitor. And this guy comes up and he asks the janitor, This technical question about the book of Revelation. And he says, do you understand? Can you tell us what the book of Revelation means? And all the janitor said is, all he replied was, it means God wins. Doing life knowing that God wins changes everything. It changes everything. It gives richer joy to the good things in this life. And it actually prevents the bad moments and the really dark moments from overwhelming us. Because in the midst of it all, you know that God wins. So in the midst of school and boyfriendlessness and girlfriendlessness and illness and loneliness and families falling apart and applying for and not getting jobs or internships or grad schools, in the midst of struggle with ongoing besetting sin, you know this, God wins. Those things can't beat you because God wins. What you believe about the future completely changes everything and it has the capacity to give us the joy in the midst of life. Last year, last January, Elizabeth and I were enjoying South Carolina, loving it, things going well there, our girls doing going well there, and David Jones calls me and he says, I, I think you should fly out to Palo Alto and come to RUF at Stanford, just come look at it. And some of y'all, I don't know if any of y'all remember, the first large group last winter, we sat back in this corner... Uh, We didn't meet any students. I don't think we just kind of hid. We didn't want anybody to see us, and we just wondered, like, "Ah, is this the place for us? But man, you come from anywhere in the country to Northern California in January. Everything's like in bloom. It's sixty-five degrees all day. Like I thought, we Elizabeth and I thought y'all were cool. We've since been kind of, but you know, (laughs) I'm kidding. But we really did fall in love, and so we knew we're coming to California in July. And from January to July, you know what we did? We did hard stuff. We finished school up there. We packed up a house with four little kids, which is hard. It's hard enough to pack a house. It's really hard with two four-year-olds and two six-year-olds. We tried to sell a house. We had to raise a lot of money to come here. We heard a lot of no's on selling our house and a lot of no's on raising money. We tried to finish well with our students at South Carolina. In some ways, I was probably the best pastor I ever was at South Carolina because I was leaving and it actually made me a little fearless it was actually probably the most truthful I'd ever been Um, we endured all that frustration and we weren't overcome because we knew in July we're going to be in California right the land of milk and honey it really was knowing where we're going to be made the frustration of getting there so much easier to deal with that's the point Remember the future. At the end of the day, there's two postures you can take towards the future. The first one is you don't know what will happen. So labor hard, right? If you take this posture that you don't know what's going to happen, labor hard. You might or might not find something worthwhile in this life. You might find love. You might find success. But you've got to rely on the fear of not finding those things to drive you. Fear that if you don't arrange your life the right way, that it might not happen for you because that's possible. And at the end of the day, if all you live for is the future that you can secure by your own hard work and determination of your hopes and what you can secure for yourself in this world, the prospect of joy, the prospect of joy will just be a taskmaster that drives you on, but you never get there. It will be nothing more than a myth that you keep living for, but never, ever find. So you can labor with that perspective in the future, or you can labor this way, because here's the reality, we're all sowing, we're all sowing seed. If you found rest in Jesus, if you come to the Lord seeking mercy, finding that he's the bread of life, and he's the living water, and he's the God of grace, the resurrection is yours. And you make the practice of remembering his past faithfulness, and make a practice of remembering that God wins. If you do that, you know what happens? Joy creeps in. A different joy than just the the pleasant circumstances uh, the pleasant emotions that arise from a favorable set of circumstances, those are not to be di- dismissed, um, but they're temporary. They're, they're fleeting. The kind of joy or happiness that comes and goes with circumstances is, is, it's not all bad, but it can become tyrannical, right? I have to do what it takes to get that feeling again. The kind of joy that comes from remembering the past and being sure that God wins, it infects every circumstance of all of life, and it can't be undone by circumstances. It's not threatened by circumstances. It continues, and it grows. And the third point is this: if looking back and looking forward means that there's joy that is possible right now in the present, there's a, there's a little tiny phrase of present tense right in the middle of the verse, at the end of verse three. We are glad, right? Same it's right between the past right before the future is. Right now, we are glad. Here, this is life. This is right now. You have to live life right now. You're going back to your dorm. You're going back to studying. You're going back to a roommate. You have things after tonight that you're going to. And it's hard hard not to lose sight of this bigger picture and this bigger perspective because we all have to go back and sew. That, that again that agricultural image is the image of life you're going to sow you're going to you're sowing in relationships right you're building relationships friendships romance whatever it is you're pouring into those it takes work it's not bad it's okay for it to be work but you're pouring into all those kind of things you're sowing in schoolwork. you're putting in the work and you're putting in the time hoping to see fruit you're waking up every morning and you're getting to work on life you're going out and you're sowing and it's hard we're all, we're all trying to pretend it's not hard but it is hard and we know it's hard the question is not, are you sowing or not? Are you not laboring in this life? Are you not putting your resources into things? The question is, are you sowing with the perspective of looking back and looking forward? Or are you sowing tyrannized by the urgent? what's I mean, right in front of you. Hoping that you can carve out a little happiness right there. Because you can sow wondering, will I? Is it going to happen for me? With no guarantees, you'll be frantic and selfish at the end of the day, your your own needs are the thing that have to be preeminent. I gotta work and I gotta work and I gotta work so that life will reward me. And, and life might not reward you, maybe you can up the odds a little bit, but that's the goal, right? So so that things will go well with me. And you could be wildly successful. You really could. A lot of a lot of people will. You can be wildly successful by relying actually on insecurity and not knowing anything for sure about the future or the past. But you'll never actually end up having security. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 15. Uh, you'll plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch, and though you make them grow on the day that you plant them, and you make them blossom in the morning you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in the day of grief and incurable pain. You'll sow, and you'll sow, and you'll sow. and You'll never experience the fruit of the joy of it. Or what you can see in here what's being described is actually the fundamental dynamic of the all of, all of Christian life. This is the dynamic that kind of sits underneath all of Scripture and it's this. Sow in tears. Listen to what he says. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Who, who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. Now this is the dynamic of all of life in a fallen world and it's the dynamic of the Gospel. It's sow in tears and reap in joy. Go out weeping and come home with joy. This is the dynamic of all of Scripture. This is Jesus' death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. And in Jesus' work of death and resurrection, His work both accomplishes salvation for us, but it actually also gives us the model for life here and now. It's death and resurrection. It's sowing and weeping and harvesting in joy. Sowing and weeping, joy in the harvest. If you are in Jesus, if you know what He's done, you know what He will do, Are you threatened at all by circumstances in this world? You don't have to be. And that's going to affect work and relationships, your sense of self. It's going to affect everything. Let's pick one area of what this would look like. Everybody's encountered it. Maybe you've been on the receiving end. Maybe you've been on the the, uh, giving end. The depressed friend or roommate. How does this double perspective in the world affect that particular situation? If you operate without that perspective and the tyranny of the urgent, then maybe there probably is some genuine human decency in you that says, i got to get into their mess, I need to listen. Right? I'm listening is fun for the first three minutes, but then you got to do a lot more listening. But decency drives you to keep doing it, and then you offer advice, and they don't listen to it, and that's fine because you understand how hard it is. And then you try to get them to come out with your friends, and they're not really friends with your friends, but you're really taking one for the team by creating that awkward social social circumstance where you're saying, friends, come love my depressed friend. And maybe they are, you know, like, (laughs) and depressed friend, like, don't be so depressed when you're out with my other friends. And, And you do that. But this is what happens after a while. You start to ask, how long? I can't wait till next year. You you start developing an exit strategy because that's hard. Decency will let us labor in that for a little while, but at some point we start developing an exit strategy. strategy. And the reason why is because caring for somebody too much at too great a cost, at the end end of the day, you just can't put your whole life on hold for them. That's destructive for you because it's your life and you've got to... You've got to take care of your own needs. And then you can do it for a while, but you can't let them destroy everything for you. So without that perspective of what Jesus has done and what God will do, that's what we're left to. We can help people a little bit for a little while. What if God has been good and God will be good? What if Jesus purchased your life at the cross and you will be with your Father in heaven What then do you do with the depressed roommate? Are you threatened by the costliness of listening and loving and pursuing and struggling with, not just for days, not just for weeks, not just for months? Maybe this will be your whole college experience. It'll cost you. But do you lose anything in the end? Does the threat of not accumulating stuff and approval in this life really threaten what you have in Jesus? Stanford is full, full of people that need the love of Jesus, that need the kindness of strangers, that need friendship, deep friendship. And the thing that keeps us from being able to go in those places of pain with other people is actually our bad memory and our unsurehood. That's what's preventing us from going into those relationships. Because if the cross is yours and the resurrection is yours, all that you have can't be taken from you. So you can give yourself away over and over and over again. And not a little, and not when it's just convenient, and not with only the type of people that you can connect with, but to whoever's in need. And it will be hard. The psalmist recognizes it. You will sow in tears. You will cry about this. It will be painful. But you'll come home with shouts of joy. The harvest that are talking to you here is the kingdom of God is all things made new again. You know, you can come to Stanford you can work your tail off and you can accomplish your dreams. You can be everything. You can start Facebook. You can never experience a moment of joy. You might experience some moments of happiness, but you won't have anything because you won't know where you came from and you won't know where you're going. And your life will always feel tenuous because difficult people, your moral failings... And the economy will always threaten everything you've built for yourself. Other people, yourself, and the economy will always threaten everything you can build for yourself. It will always feel tenuous. But if you're in Jesus, and you look back and you remember His deliverances, and you look forward and you remember and look t- look towards the Lamb's Feast, then in the present tense, now, today, you can say what the psalmist says right in the middle of the verse. We're glad. So here's the question. Will you choose distraction or joy? Will you distract yourself from what you know to be true? Will you labor without any kind of historical context? With nothing to hope in except for your ability to manage the urgent. Or will you deal with a deep sense of wrongness by looking at the story of the whole world by gaining perspective? Looking back and looking forward. And if you live into that story, you will sow in tears. And you will labor but you'll be a wholly different person. Knowing who your father is, knowing what he's done for you, and knowing that you're going to be with him again. And the world actually will be completely confused by who you are because you'll be released from the tyranny of using every moment and opportunity in a relationship to squeeze out something for yourself. The world won't even understand the way you're living. And what you'll experience is you'll experience the inbreaking of joy. Even in the midst of tears, joy will break in. If you want this story to be yours, all you have to do is come to God and tell him, I want in on it." Let's pray.